0: and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. continue with our uh, hymn of the month. May God bestow on us his grace. <laughs>
1: May God bestow on us his grace with blessings rich provide us and may the brightness of his face to life eternal guide us that we his saving health may know his gracious will and pleasure and also to the nations show Christ's riches without measure and unto God convert them. Thine over all shall be the praise and thanks of every nation and all the world With joy shall raise the voice of exultation. For thou shalt judge the earth, O Lord, nor suffer sin to flourish. Thy people's pasture is thy word, their souls to feed and nourish paths to keep them. Oh, let the people praise thy worth in all good works increasing. The land shall plenteous fruit bring forth. Thy word is rich in blessing. Make God the Father God. Son, and let the Spirit bless us, let all the world praise Him alone, let hope possess us, now let our hearts say,
0: Amen. Uh, we'll continue with the Catechism Bible Memory work. Uh, So, continuing in the table of duties, the biblical instructions for parents. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. In Luther's morning prayer, I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. And I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings in life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, bless us and keep us. Amen. All right, uh, kids can go off to Sunday school. Okay. Um, in the Hymn of the Month, we talked about the um, first two stanzas of the last two weeks. So we'll look briefly at the third stanza this week, which is a um, what we call a doxological stanza. Which means it's got this little triangle next to it at the beginning. Which in the worship setting, uh, not we, we don't do it in here, but in the worship setting, um, that, that's a symbol to mean stand up because it's a doxological stanza, um, and they probably chose the triangle. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what the, how long these have been in hymnals for, but um, are these in TLH, Donna? The the triangles. Okay. Um, see, in the old days, you had to just pay attention to the words. <laughs> To know if you should stand or not, I guess. But the word doxological comes from uh, the Greek word doxos, which means glory. Um, so it's a, a stanza to the glory of God. Um, it's a stanza pro, proclaim And normally doxological stanzas, it's probably why they chose a triangle, are Trinitarian in nature. That there's a specific mention of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit um, praising each person of the Trinity uh, individually, if you will although as the triune God, of course. And so uh, this is a a stanza of praise to the Trinity. Um, Now, in hymns, obviously the, the hymn as a whole will normally have a theme of some sort, and we've talked about how this is Luther's missional hymn. And so you can notice the connection of Mission and then praise to God that we praise God for what He accomplishes on His mission. Um, let the people praise Thy worth, all good works increasing. The land shall plenteous fruit bring forth. Thy word is rich in blessing. So, notice what is doing the work of mission in Luther's theology of mission here. It's the word, right? Um, and when, whenever the nations are converted, it's by the work of the word, right? Thy people's pasture is thy word, thy, their souls to feed and nourish. Um, so the word is rich in blessing. And then may God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit bless us. Let all the world praise him alone. And that world, um, harkening back to what we talked about last week in stanza two with the idea of dominion, that uh, the gospel is meant to be a a dominion gospel, a gospel that goes out over to all nations, over all the world. Let all the world praise him alone. Let's all all possess us and now let our hearts say amen. And uh, I love doxological stanzas. I think this is one of those things that um, you could view as like, oh, the hymn writer just threw on an extra stanza at the end because uh, it's, You just, you know, you add a doxological stanza and um, you just add something about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit just as kind of an extra extra thing. Um, But I think it's more significant than that, that we put doxological stanzas on the end of a lot of our hymns and that we stand for them, right? And that we would actually uh, recognize the importance of this kind of – Intentional praise to the glory of God in our worship. Um, Worship in the Lutheran tradition has always been talked about as kind of this two-way street. The word goddess saints in German, which is where we get our term uh, divine service, goddess uh, divine uh, service. Is it's a two-way divine service. First of all, it's the divine uh, serving us, and then it's us returning our thanks. So the divine serves us. How does the divine serve us? How does God serve us in worship? He comes to us how? Through the Lord's Supper. To, through, the Lord's supper through, the word. through the Word. Through baptism. Right. So we can just sum it up as means of grace, or Word and sacrament. But then we return our thanks and praise to him for those things. Right? So uh, we, we give him praise in prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and prayer. And, and yeah, and we do this in song, we do this um, in prayer. Uh, and it's this constant back and forth, right? So uh, from the very beginning of the service, uh, we're praising him. Uh, with, with an opening hymn, and uh, he's coming to us in his word of absolution, and then we're praising him again in the Psalms of the, the introit, and then he's coming to us again in his word, which is read, and then we praise him again in song, and then he comes to us in the preaching, and then uh, we confess his name in the creed. It's a constant back and forth, right, throughout the, throughout the divine service. And... All of this is to say is that doing this part intentionally, um, it's necessary for the Christian life, right? I mean, Paul has uh, not just Paul, but the whole Bible has constant commands that we would. Um, you can look in the Psalms that we would that we would praise God and bless His name, right? And um, I think Lutherans tend to like to focus on this part more. Uh, in some ways, at least in our theology. That God comes to us that, you know, we don't we don't uh, God doesn't need our good works, right? Our good works don't save us. And so sometimes we get uncomfortable talking about what we do, but God commands us to do these things and we do them joyfully. And um, I think it's significant that, you know, we have these doxological stanzas in our hymns uh, to to specifically do that, to to just simply praise God for the gifts that he gives, um, in this, in this very specific way. So, uh, that's the third stanza of may God bestow on us his grace, um, which is great. And, uh, yeah, next, next week is the last week in, uh, last Sunday in October, I believe, uh, Reformation Sunday. So, um, we'll, we'll sing this Luther hymn on Reformation Sunday one last, one last time. For the uh, catechism memory work uh, this week, this is from Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Uh, That's the ESV, I believe. Um, I memorized this verse in some other translation. This is the problem when you read multiple translations, is that you memorize verses in different translations, and then you never really know. Um, Sometimes I get them all combined translations in my head. Anyway, um, I I, I memorize this, raise them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Um, Regardless, uh, the meaning is is basically the same. Uh, I think one of those words, the word training or probably the word instruction there, admonition. um, Yeah, admonition, instruction. It's probably the word uh, paideia in Greek, which is the word for discipline. Same word that when the father uh, in Hebrews uh, chastises his children because he loves them. Um, This idea of discipline is this idea that if you love someone, you're not going to let them just do whatever they want. Right, because if you let someone do whatever they want, they're going by by their sinful nature, they're going to lead themselves into destruction. And so, with raising up children, it is the parents' job. So Paul specifically addresses fathers, but if you've read Ephesians five, um, you know that, and and you've read um, what Paul says about fathers and mothers and families up until this point. Uh, you know that this is a job for both parents. The fathers are being addressed as the head of the household, but then um, the, those duties of the household are delegated down through the ranks, if you will. So this obviously includes mothers as well. Um, so you could even just say parents, although I think Paul does use the word fathers there for a reason to indicate that the responsibility is the head of the households. Um Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and discipline of the Lord. Um, there's always this balance in parenting of the discipline is necessary that we just talked about. You can't otherwise children will naturally lead themselves into destruction. They they need to be taught what is right and wrong. And um, there's all, all this is in the Proverbs constantly. You no. Know, uh, spoil uh spare the rod, spoil the child. Um, right? That is actually in the Bible. Yeah. Um that's one of those like Bible trivia questions. Is this saying in the Bible or not? Um that children do need discipline, but they also cannot be exasperated. They can't be over disciplined, right? Um in a, in the sense that they will learn to to hate you if you over-discipline them constantly, right? And resent you. And so the discipline needs to be done with care <clears throat> and with love and with instruction. That uh, you're teaching them why you're disciplining them. And it's I had a seminary professor say this one time um, that parenting is is very difficult for this reason that as the sinful people we are, it this balance is near impossible to strike well, right? People are always going to be given to either over discipline or under discipline their kids, right? Um, There's going to be times where you're sitting there thinking, you know, I don't want to deal with this and just let them have their way. And then they're being under disciplined and then they're being taught that if they just, you know, whine enough, then they'll get what they want or whatever. Um, Or you're going to let it get out of hand and then you're going to become angry and then discipline out of anger instead of disciplining out of love. And it's just a, it's a very difficult balance, uh, to strike. So, um, this reminder for parents is always a, a good thing. Um, but that, that, that's, I, I love this. I love verses like this that just kind of sum up Everything that someone has – this is why Luther d- writes out the table of duties. He's kind of just summarizing um, from the Bible the basic structure of people's vocations. Yeah, Steve. Yeah, I
1: have an analogy of, of trying to land the big fish. You know, you, you keep the line taut, but then when you run, you have to let it out a little bit. Right. So they don't snap the line. Right. You know, and that's the
0: idea. Yeah, yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good one. Um All right. Uh any questions on the hymn or catechism? Or comments? All right. So, um we're jumping into We're, we're moving towards uh we're moving south, if you will. So, we had just covered for the last couple months, more than a couple months probably, we've been covering the northern kingdom in the era of the divided kingdom in Bible history. And we want to get towards the southern kingdom, but there's one final thing we need to do about the northern kingdom, and that's how they get taken into captivity by the Assyrian Empire. So we're going to cover that a little bit. Um, first of all, I want to uh Kind of continue to drill into your heads. I'm going to go do over on the side of the board real quick. Um, the overarching view of Bible history that we've been working with. And the reason I want to do this is because the reason we've been doing Bible history for two years is so that when you go and read your Bible, that you have a very good idea of kind of what am I reading? Where am I in the story of the scripture? um the the story of the bible is your story um god gives us this narrative word with all these different uh genres of course but this this story of the bible that goes from creation to jesus coming back again and that story is all about jesus and specifically all about how jesus comes to you and saves you right seeks and saves the lost so I want you to see how you fit in in that story, and um, knowing the history of the Bible helps you do that, right? Uh, So anyhow, um, the basic outline that we've been working with, if you remember, and I'll kind of give you the dates as well. So primaeval, which is uh, from creation, which the Bible does not give a specific date for, uh, to... About 2200 B.C. And then we have the Patriarchs. And this is on your Old Testament reference sheet, by the way, Um, at the top. Which Uh, Patriarchs are 2200, so it starts with Abraham uh, and ends with Joseph to about 1500 B.C. And then we have Moses and Joshua, which is going to include the Exodus, obviously, and the entry into the Promised Land, 1500 B.C. Uh, The Exodus, by the way, is uh, 1446, which is just a good date to know. Um, That's one of the major events in the Old Testament, so that can kind of help you date things. 1375. Talking the Judges, which you can find that in the book of Judges. <laughs> okay. Amazing ones. Mm-hmm. 1375 to 1050. And then the United Kingdom. So you know, this is this is the Bible's kind of gone in chronological order up until this point. And then the United Kingdom. Starting in the United Kingdom, you're going to get the stuff in Kings and Chronicles, and then you're going to get prophets kind of all over the place. And so this is when the Bible itself starts to not go in chronological order. Um, From creation through Judges, it's going in chronological order. Um, The United Kingdom, which is Saul, David, and Solomon, right? Uh, 1050 to 930. And then the divided kingdom, which we're in now, uh, division of the kingdom, divided kingdom. Uh, now, I'm going to uh, add in something here. So um, let's, let's go ahead and do this one first. So division of the kingdom um, up until the Babylonian captivity. So the... Uh, Assyrian captivity happens before the Babylonian captivity, which we're going to talk about today, but up until the Babylonian captivity of the Judah is, um, we got 932, 586 is when the Babylonian captivity happens, 586, um, and then I'm adding in uh, something here that's not on your reference sheet, which I realized was probably kind of important, um, is the return from exile? So uh, the the captivities don't last forever. They do get to return from exile before Jesus comes back, and that takes place over a period of about a hundred years. That's um, 538. So it's the uh, the the exile happens from 586 up until this time period um, to 4. 44 it's easy to remember 444 uh, BC so over a period of about 100 years the people who are in exile in what ends up being the Persian Empire um, are allowed to go back into Jerusalem and this is where we get second temple uh, so the temple is rebuilt and so this form of uh, kind of the what your average Jewish person believes and there's a there's actually a lot of sects that form during this time. Um, so the, the prophets kind of end at this point and then we have what's called the intertestamental period in the Bible where at the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of New Testament there's about three, four hundred years that's not recorded. Um, And that's why uh, we do value things like the Apocrypha, which give us some historical insight to what's happening at this time. When Jesus comes on the scene, he's going to find a form of uh, Judaism um, that is going to have some true Christians in it. But it's also going to have things like the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Samaritans and all sorts of other groups that are um the essenes that are kind of a um, perverted form of what moses taught right and there's there's things in second temple judaism that aren't quite right um, so second temple judaism refers to the second temple the, the rebuilt temple of solomon whenever they come back from exile so and then from um, the the ex from the return to exile, return exile to Jesus is uh, the birth of Christ, right? 444 to 2 BC or so. Um, the there's been a lot of you know, uh, work done, um, chronological historical work on when exactly Jesus was born and when he died. And, um, I think it's pretty well settled now that he was born about two BC. So, uh, the, obviously at, at one point in history, people thought that he was born at one, One or at zero, zero, yeah, zero BC or zero AD, however you want to think about it, and that's where anno domini, uh, which is what AD stands for, is uh, the year of our Lord in Latin, and so that's how come you know we're in 2022 AD, the year of our Lord 2022. So, um, anyhow, and the you know, before Christ, B.C. is what pe- people have uh, always said B.C. was. and But then that was, like, too Christian, and then now it's, what, B.C.E., and what's the other one? I never heard yeah. any others. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. So go find a public school history book. <laughs> um, yeah, so I grew up uh, BC, uh, in the history books with its, like, B.C.E. Um, which I can't remember what that stands for. And then I can't remember what the the, the new AD one is, but they changed it because it was like it wasn't secular enough or whatever. So yeah, yeah. So um, anyway, all right. But this is kind of the – this is the major divisions of chronology in the Old Testament. And again, I just want you to keep those divisions in your head because as we've learned about them and then – when you end up opening your Bible to uh, say the prophet Hosea, like we talked about last week, you can be like, you can remember, oh, yeah, this is during the divided kingdom. So these are the dynamics at play, right? This is what's going on. Um, there's a lot of unfaithfulness between these uh, camps in Israel. There's that Hosea is prophesying in the northern kingdom, which means that he's dealing with things like. Uh, golden calf worship and bell worship, right? So, um, and this is, you know, after David, but this is before the second temple is, is built. So those kinds of things are actually really helpful in reading the Bible and understanding the context. So again, I just want to keep drilling that kind of into your head. Um, you don't have to memorize all the dates. The dates are just there uh, for, your, for your reference. But if you can kind of keep in mind, how the story of the Old Testament plays out, I think that is extremely valuable. All right, so, um, and then also, I as I, I kind of said this, but on your reference sheet, if you keep these, um, I'm going to make new ones. Eventually, I want to add some maps and stuff to them that I don't already have, but uh, you can add this section here that is not on there. You can write that in. Um, kind of edit that, because I think before I just had from the Division of the kingdom to... Or from the Babylonian exile to Jesus. I didn't have this line here, so... Um, All right. So we're going to look at uh, 2 Kings 17, which is where the Assyrian captivity is recorded in the scriptures. And um, we're going to kind of see what brings that about. So if you look at the chart on the back of your Old Testament reference material... Hoshea is the last uh, king of the northern kingdom. He's the last king of Israel before the Assyrian captivity. And so, at, in uh, 2 Kings 17, um, it begins with talking about how Hoshea is paying tribute money um, to the king of Assyria. And whenever Assyria finds out that he's not only paying tribute money to Assyria, remember when we talked about Amos and Hosea, what was one of the prophecies against Israel that they were paying tribute money to these other nations, to these foreign nations? Why is that a problem? Well, rewind back to Joshua. What were they supposed to do? They were supposed to go in
1: and kill
0: them and and, and them yeah take yeah. take over these yeah. Canaanite nations these evil nations and make them Christian nations um, and they didn't do that and even throughout the time of Joshua judges the United Kingdom the divided kingdom what are the prophets saying they're saying the Lord will give you victory pray to the Lord. Right. Um, if, if you remember kind of a refrain we had for the United Kingdom, there was three needs that good kings needed. The need for prayer, the need for the word from the prophets, and the need for right worship. And Hosea is not praying for help from the Lord. He's looking for help. From where? From foreign nations who worship Bel or other gods. Um, So, he is paying tribute money, and this ends up not working out for him. Because why? Because he also thinks he's going to hedge his bets by paying tribute money to, this is uh, verse 4, to Egypt. So, if you look at let me figure out which map would be the best here. Um, Yeah, you can see on the divided kingdom map that uh, Israel's up here. The Assyrian empire is this way. But down here, there's Egypt. And so you have these two major world powers basically, one coming up from the south. West. And one coming down. From the northeast. And Israel is thinking. We're going to hedge our bets. And we'll pay tribute money to both. But the Assyrian. King does not like that. So this is verse 4. 2 Kings 17. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy. In Hosea. For he had sent messengers. To, to the king of. Uh, to sow the king of Egypt and brought no present to the king of Assyria as he had done year by year. Therefore, the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. So Hosea tries to pay tribute money to Egypt instead of Assyria one year. And this is when Assyria finally takes over Israel. So remember they had been fighting back and forth but then the king started to pay this tribute money, but that was only going to last so long. And uh, then the next verse is, it's, it seems like kind of a, just a minor verse in the Bible, but it's actually such a huge event in biblical history. This one verse, verse 5, Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria And remember, Samaria is the capital of Israel and besieged it three years. Besieged it three years. Now, uh, besiegement... um, Can someone describe to me what besiegement is? Part of a battle. Yeah, it's part of a battle. It's where... They take over? Yeah, they take over. So they basically... They're not – it doesn't mean they go in and they kill everyone and plunder everything, but they basically take governmental control of a place. So um, when I was at the pastor's conference at Pickwick, uh, we went up to see the Shiloh Battlefield because it's 20 minutes away from Pickwick Lake, and um, there's a lot of signs about besiegement where uh, the Yankees would take – you know uh, area and besiege it they would take it over right so that happened in corinth mississippi yeah. uh, after the failure at um, depending on you know what side you're on the, the failure at shiloh uh the confederates retreated to um corinth and then um a couple years later corinth was besieged by the union and um it was under union control for Okay. Two, two or three years, yeah. Before they, they tried to take it back again, and it didn't didn't work. And then they went down to Vicksburg. So, um, there's a really nice Civil War museum in Corinth. It's an hour and a half away. It's pretty nice. Um, so that's besiegement. They they take control. They take governmental control. The people are still living there, for the most part, um, but they're under the the, a government, a foreign government. So they're besieged for three years. And then Assyria does, um, in verse 6, what uh, is normal for what Assyria had been doing. So Assyria had been growing and growing and growing uh, for the last couple hundred years. Their empire had been growing. They were becoming the dominant power in Mesopotamia. Uh, at this time and this is what this was their standard operating procedure. They would besiege a place and then they would do this in the ninth year of Hosea the king of Assyria. Um, so notice even Hosea is still nominally the king of the place, but it doesn't matter, right, because they're besieged. Um, in the ninth year of Hosea the king of Assyria They took Samaria and carried Israel away into Assyria, and placed them in Hala and in Haber by the river of Gozan and in the cities of the Medes. So they took the people that were in Samaria, in the capital city of Israel, and in and in other throughout Israel, and they carried them away throughout throughout Israel, Um, and. (laughs) What does is, what is that, that do to a people? Uh, it keeps them from organizing and fighting back. Divide. Right. Yeah, they're dividing them up. Um, and this is where we get the term the Jewish diaspora is that um, beginning with the Assyrian captivity, uh, Jews, sons of Abraham, ethnic Jews, are, are spread about throughout the Mesopotamian lands. Um, they're spread out. So that they can't fight back. And uh, this this was the way that uh, Syria um, often often did this. There's an application I want to make about that, but I was – yeah, OK. I'm going to get there later. OK. OK. Um, double-checking my notes. It's what happens when you write your notes two weeks early and then, yeah. <laughs> All right. um, So verses uh, 7 um, and following, 7 through about 24, we get this litany of why this happened. Why did this happen? And this happened just because of what, just because of what, Uh, Amos and Hosea for instance And Elijah and Elisha And all the prophets that we've looked at Have said this was going to happen You're going to be taken over You're going to be spread out You're going to face punishment For your sin And uh, Here 2 Kings records um, What they did So it starts out with verse 7 For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel of, and the, of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And it goes on and on and on about how they, um, you know, looked for, they worshiped Baal. Uh, they looked for uh, prophets that weren't their own, how they rejected, rejected his statutes, how they worshiped the golden calves, um, how they uh sacrificed their sons and their daughters um, and so on and so forth um, all the way up until about uh, verse 20 well so verse 23 um, for this children of Israel now this is an interesting verse for the children of this is 22 the children of Israel walked in the sins of Jeroboam which he did remember Jeroboam was the first king to go astray. He is one of the first kings in the divided kingdom. And what was the refrain constantly about all those other kings we looked at? They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. They walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And so the children of Israel as a whole have walked in the sins of Jeroboam. And they did not depart from them, 23, until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. So notice, even though this is the Assyrian king who is doing this, he's acting as God's servant. God is using a pagan, same way he's going to use Cyrus, to return them from exile. He's using this this pagan Assyrian king, who's not even named in the Bible. Um, we know who he is through king records of Assyria. I don't remember his name. It's like complicated, you know, Assyrian name. Um, he's using this Assyrian king to... Uh, Remove the people of Israel from his sight, disperse them from his sight. Um, this is a kind of a macro version of what you get in uh, 1 Corinthians 5 when Paul commands the excommunication of a single member from a church. Um, there's a guy that's sleeping with his mother-in-law and, and Paul says, kick him out. Deliver him over to the devil so that he would see his sins and repent and would be able to come back, right? This is this is the idea is that um, God wants – they need to learn – this is also related to what we were talking about with parents and children. They need to be disciplined. They need to learn that there's punishment for sin. And so God finally reveals his punishment for them uh, by giving away their land and by dispersing them throughout Uh, The Assyrian Empire. Okay, so there is punishment of sin. And then in 24, um, you see all the different places that the children of Israel go. Uh, The king of Assyria brought men from Babylon. And uh, oh, so this is uh, excuse me. This is when um, they so the people of Israel get spread out. And then uh, the Assyrian Empire brings in people to resettle Samaria. Um, to, to Basically, to diversify um, Samaria with people who are committed to their cause, uh, right? So, uh, to the cause of the Assyrian Empire. So, he brings in men from Babylon, uh, from Cuthah, from Ava, from Hamath, um, from Sefer Ravim, and places them in the cities of Samaria in, instead of the children of Israel. And they possess Samaria and the cities thereof. Okay. So um, he brings, they bring in all these other kind of diversified people uh, to do this. And this uh, was not part of the Lord's plan. Right. So the Lord uh, uses the Assyrian king to do this. But um, he does want to return them from exile eventually. Correct. So when he sees this happening... And that these people do not fear the Lord. Uh, What does the Lord do? Verse 25. Yeah, again, like kind of a minor like verse, just like, you know, you're just reading and then you'd miss it if you were, you know, a little too tired reading this in bed at night. Um, But the Lord sends lions among them who slew some of them. Uh, So, and then um, he sends, after that happens, um, the king of Assyria says, their God must not be happy with us, which is true. Um, and so bring one of the priests back to teach them the – basically what he would see as kind of the, the old religion of Samaria, which is um, Christianity, right? Uh, which is what, what what Moses had taught and uh, Old Testament Christianity. And so that kind of works. Um the the priest comes, and we don't even know who the priest was, but the priest comes and teaches uh, them um, the words of Moses, but there's still a lot of unfaithfulness, right? There's still going to be a lot of unfaithfulness, and this is actually how um, – so Samaria, right? This is how you get uh, when we come back from Second Temple Judaism and when Jesus comes and Jesus is talking about things like the good Samaritan uh the samaritans uh this is where we get the samaritans and um the samaritans are this group of people who have uh very much become intermarried right and why are they intermarried because all these random people coming in and a lot of their people going out so they're they're very intermarried so they're not you know, kind of pure sons of Abraham, if you will. Um, And they have a lot of Moses, um, but they've also been exposed to a lot of idols um, through these other people. And um, what they end up doing is, theologically, they're kind of interesting in that they see themselves As this kind of purist group of the Israelite religion that they end up holding um, to Moses, but they reject the prophets. So, when, fast forward in history, when we get to Jesus and the Samaritans, um, it's this kind of group that thinks they are. Kind of pure, they don't. They don't believe in Isaiah. They don't believe in Jeremiah. So the Second Temple uh, Judaism, you know, they have at this point they have the recorded <clears throat> prophets. They have the Old Testament in hand, basically. Um, you can think of like in what is that? Luke ten, when Jesus picks up the scroll and starts reading from Isaiah. Um, the Samaritans, who are you know this kind of northern. So if you You remember where Jerusalem is and where, uh, you know, Jesus is doing his ministry down here. Samaritans way up here north above all the mountains. Um, They're kind of this weird mountain group of people that that considers themselves more pure. The Pharisees uh, think they're heretics because uh, they reject the prophets. And so that's the background of like the story of the Good Samaritan is that. When the, um, when the Samaritan chooses to help um, one of these Israelites that's, that's fallen, um, it's kind of an amazing thing because these groups of people hate each other. There's a lot of animosity between the Samaritans and the Pharisees. Um, and so when the Levite doesn't help and the priest doesn't help the man fallen on the side of the road... But the Samaritan does as as one who's been rejected by men. Um, It's kind of an amazing thing. So anyway, that's where the Samaritans come from. Uh, That's the background is is through the Assyrian captivity and Assyria um, bringing these people in. So uh, what time is it? Okay, we'll try and finish this up. Um, If you look at. Uh, so I, I, that's that's basically Second Kings 17. Um, I want to cover a few more things about the Assyrian Empire to give you an idea of what is going on with them um, historically. And then we'll see how uh, Bab- Bab- the Babylonian Empire kind of takes over um, when we go back to the northern kingdom. Um, because Babylonia is going to be what is – becomes the major – Uh, empire at the time that Judah goes into captivity and then Babylon and Assyria all kind of get combined into the Persian empire by the end. So that's why um, after the uh, exile, so you have the exile map there, which you can see how, and notice how far out into Assyria the Israelites are spread. And then you also have here, uh, this Persian empire, which is, you can see how, um, later on, uh, all these things that are colored, that's the whole Persian empire by the time of 333 BC. And, um, which if you notice is during the time between the return from exile of Jesus. So the Persian empire is, is, is huge. But if you look at this, uh, Persian empire map, Here, you kind of have, you have the Black Sea up here. um, The Mediterranean Sea down here. um, The Persian Gulf over here, if you're looking at these bodies of water. And then uh, the Caspian Sea up here. And if you kind of draw a loose... um circle kind of around these places, something like that. I know that that doesn't look like much, but um, that is basically where the Assyrian Empire uh, was during the captivity. So I wanted to show you um, kind of how big they are if you're looking at... um, Yeah, if if you're looking at those maps and you kind of want to see, okay, when... When Israel was taken into captivity, how big was Assyria um, during uh, this time? So that and this is remember uh, the seven, basically the 730s. Um, yeah, so Hosea is 730 to 722, 730-720s. Um, it's on that map there. Syrians took Israel into captivity, 734 to 721. So. Uh, in the 730s this is about uh, where Assyria was and you know Israel's way over here and they bring they bring them in this direction and then they bring other people from all over the place uh, to do that. So um, that is uh, Assyria. you can also see um, on that exile map uh, and also probably on mm, no it's been renamed by then probably. Um, you can see on that exile map Nineveh, uh, which is, uh, up around here, Nineveh is the capital city, which if you remember the prophet Jonah, right? Uh, Jonah prophesies, which we talked about, um, with the Northern kingdom, Jonah prophesies during the, no- the uh, reign of the Northern kingdom. And he goes up into Assyria. This is what what, part of what makes the story so amazing about Jonah is that he goes all the way uh, from Israel and is commanded to go up into Nineveh, the capital city of this wicked empire, and to prophesy to them. And that Nineveh was the center of the world at that point, right? We think you could think of Nineveh kind of like New York City or something, right? Or Washington D.C. Um, It's the center of this major empire's uh, world, right? Or you could, if you wanted to do a different major uh, world empire, you could do like, uh, you know, Moscow or Britain or something, right? This is, Nineveh is like a huge place um, for a major world empire. And there is a time, a short time, where because of the work of Jonah, many of the Ninevites become... Become Christians, so uh, it's kind of amazing there what God does through the prophet through the prophet Jonah. Um, one other thing I wanted to talk about, and we'll end on this, is uh, the downfall and the pride of the Assyrian Empire. So eventually, the Assyrian Empire is going to fall to Babylon and then to to Persia. Um, but I want to use a modern phrase to kind of give you an idea of how empires end up falling. And maybe this is a little bit prophetic, but um, have you heard the phrase uh, in recent political discussion? Diversity, equity, and inclusion,
1: mm-hmm.
0: or in- we'll do. I I like I like it when it, the acronym is DIE. So um, inclusion and. Mm-hmm. E- because it actually kind of makes sense. Uh, so diversity, inclusion, equity is this Marxist phrase um, that if you worked in a corporate office, which I don't think many of you do, which is good uh, right now, you would probably have to go through DAI training um, to learn how to be more inclusive, uh, more diverse, and more equitable, which basically means, so diversity means, you know, uh, is obviously kind of racially motivated that we want, um, as many races, uh, as possible to be represented. Um, and we're going to put that above, you know, yeah, qualifications, um, inclusion is that no matter what your, you know, we're going to include Um, you as valid uh, as a valid contribution to this workforce this would be in like a corporate setting Um, you know no matter if you're uh, gay or trans or whatever and then equity uh, has this idea of equity of outcome that everyone deserves to have the same amount of um, success and the same amount of money and everything, and you see how that gets to be a little bit communist and Marxist, um, that you know, the big, the big government or the big corporation is going to distribute everything evenly. right? Well, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this is actually kind of the model for when the Assyrian Empire takes over places and ultimately what causes their downfall, and this is true with a lot of empires, um, Rome and, and other such empires that end up falling over time, is that they start to focus on getting very large. And the way they do that is they try and make everything diverse, inclusive, and, and equitable um, to further their their empire. So they'll take over a place like Israel and what is the first thing they do they try and diversify it to split up the natural people group that's there and then they try and make everyone uh kind of inclusive on the same in the same uh you know religion or whatever or um keep it diverse religiously enough that there's um no one clear religion but they try and make everyone kind of uh they, they they take all these diverse people and they kind of smash them together right and try and make them one people um so you can see it like how samaria ends up getting very intermarried because of this um which uh ends up kind of trying to make this unnatural inclusivity if you will and uh then the equity is that what, what's the end goal for the empire? They want every place that they take over, diversify, make into this conglomeration to then be completely devoted to them. And then they will give you what you need. right? So the, the Syrian government, uh, basically what they do is they turn everyone into slaves or into soldiers. And ultimately this ends up failing because what happens… Uh, people don't, aren't meant to live this way, right? They're not meant to live apart from their natural people group. They're not meant to live um, in a way that they're being forced into other religions that is not uh, the true uh, religion. And they're uh, being forced to serve a cause which they don't believe in. And so this is, it's interesting to me that there are these parallels between the Assyrian empire who goes in and kind of acts this way, you could even say this kind of Marxist way, of taking over, trying to make people their soldiers, and uh, our modern American empire, which is uh, pushing the same kinds of ideas throughout a lot of different uh, avenues in our universities and in our corporations and things, Um, you start to wonder how long is is all this going to last right before people just rebel and and don't believe in it anymore um that there's no that there's no unity uh true unity right and the the irony of these terms is that these can be good terms right treating people equitably um in the sense that you would treat them uh thoughtfully and um let the punishment fit the crime which is what the term equity traditionally meant is good um, diversity can be good Like diversity of thought And even diversity of people um, And in, and inclusion I mean Christianity is inclusive Right? Um, from every race and tribe From every nation So these things can be good But then they're perverted To uh, further the cause of a wicked uh, Of a wicked people And it causes the downfall of empires So um, I think that's interesting when we look at uh, the Assyrian Empire, same thing is going to be true with Babylon um, and, and many empires throughout throughout world history is that they they get too diverse, they get too large, and they can't keep it all together. So uh, that is how it goes. Any final questions or comments on any of that? Yes,
1: yeah, I noticed in the Persian Empire, the far east of it, it looks like it's over for India or was that just
0: no, uh, they were Medes, um, so they were closer to the central um, middle Middle East. There, uh, yeah, they, they were they were more Middle Eastern than than that. Okay. All right. But yeah, they I mean, they did get very diverse in that way. All right. Let's uh, close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all the gifts that you give us. And we praise you especially for your son, Jesus Christ, who uh, came to forgive our sins, to die on the cross and to be raised again for our justification. Uh, We pray that you would continue to teach us your word that we may learn from it. Uh, We pray that you would be slow to mercy and abounding in steadfast love when you look upon our sins, Uh, that you would, as you have promised, cast them into the depths of the sea. We pray that we would uh, learn from our sins, repent of them, and come to you in faith, knowing that you will punish sins, and knowing that you also desire to forgive sins. We pray all of this through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen.